This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Edna O'Brien's story, The Widow, which was published in The New Yorker in 1989. You may ask, as the postmistress had asked, the postmistress, her sworn enemy, why have Venetian blinds drawn at all times, winter and summer, daylight and dark? What is Bridget trying to hide? The story was chosen by Andrew O'Hagan, who is the author of five novels, including Our Fathers, Be Near Me, and this year's The Illuminations. His story, Foreigners, was published in The New Yorker in 2004. Oh, hi, Andrew. Hi. So tell me first, why did you choose a story by Edna O'Brien to read for the podcast? This is possibly the best story about small-town gossip that I've ever encountered. It has a fantastic sense of specificity about the Irish location. This is set in a very typical Irish town. And the closeness of the community in no way denies them their many opportunities for unearthing little horrors about each other. And she animates fantastically well in the story this sense of a chorus almost, like a Greek chorus. We often find in Thomas Hardy's novels or in James Joyce this sense of a community as a chorus commenting ceaselessly on the lives of others. And in this story, we see how that can become ruinous. Mm -hmm. It's a a fantastic distillation of that for me. Edna O'Brien, she could write about small-town scandals like nobody else. She could also cause them. She had her books were banned in Ireland. Absolutely. Many of them, and one of them was even burned at one point. Mm. What is it about her that's so inflammatory in Ireland in particular? I think we sometimes forget in our great sort of rush to enthusiastically inhabit the modern that there was a time before now And in Ireland, that meant a great unity of church and state, that the church had a lot to say about the governance of everyday life. And women's lives were especially proscribed, it seems to me. In the Ireland of Edna O'Brien's youth, she's now a writer of 84. Her first book, as you mentioned, The Country Girls, was was not only banned by the church, it was burned in the streets here and there, the accusation being that it was obscene Mm -hmm. uh, in its depiction of young women having a sense of sexuality. Of course, now we would take it completely for granted, as we should, (laughs) that women not only have sexuality, but that great fiction writers would convey that to the readers. This is almost a definition of groundbreaking, breaking the path so that other people can walk there. Other writers have a lot to be grateful, I think, to Edna Bryan for, that she, of course, was badly treated by her own country and by the very rigid Iron Church, that surrounded her in her young years. But she's come to seem rather a hero of freedom of speech. Is she read that way in Ireland now? I think that she's enjoying a great renaissance now. (laughs) And she would no doubt say herself that this story, I think, is very typical of her, especially in that it probably takes a very straightforward place in a tradition of Irish short fiction, all the way, perhaps, from James Joyce's groundbreaking Dubliners, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. those short stories, very patient, very focused on the smallness of small lives, on the breath, on the language, uh, hitting the page very naturally. Mm -hmm. All of that is there in Edna O'Brien's work. And I think that if you look at her and John McGarhan and William Trevor, Mm -hmm. you see almost a commonality 
a respect for simplicity and, as it were, lived experience, which I think is a hallmark of so many of the stories that she published in The New Yorker. Yeah, I mean, she also has a respect for emotion. It's not just just the sexuality that's open. It's sort of a sense that emotion is at the forefront of everything. Absolutely. And, you know, Deborah, one of the things that you see in her stories is that the emotion is quite often understated. It exists between the lines. It exists, as it were, outside of the expressed words and sentences of the piece. She's a sort of master of that, Mm -hmm. that... um, she manages to convey a whole sensibility by the leaving out of a word. A whole sense of life and judgment in this small town is conveyed by people simply choosing language which has, is loaded with a sense of mm-hmm. judgment and a sense of disapproval. But there is no long speech in the story of someone disapproving about someone's choices in life. We somehow have this assemblage of judgment and of people casting their eye coldly on the lives of their fellows. Well, I think now we have to listen to the story. (laughs) (laughs) Now here is Andrew O'Hagan reading The Widow by Edna O'Brien. The Widow Bridget was her name. She played cards like a trooper, and her tipple was gin and lime. She kept lodgers, but only select lodgers, people who came for the dapping, or maybe a barrister who would come overnight to discuss a case with a client or with a solicitor. The creamery manager was the first guest to be more or less permanent. After a few months, it was clear he wasn't going to build the bungalow he had said he would, and after a few more months, he was inviting girls to the house as if it were his own. Oh, the stories, the stories. Card parties, drink, and God knows what else. No one dared ask expressly. Gaudy women with nail varnish and lizard handbags and so forth often came, sometimes staying for the weekend. Bridget had devoted the sitting room to him and his guests, choosing to say that whatever they wanted to do was their business. She worked in the daytime in a local shop where she was a bookkeeper. She kept herself very much to herself, sat in her little office with its opaque beaded glass panelling and wrote out the bills and paid for commodities and rarely, if ever, came out to the shop to serve customers. The owner and she got on well. He called her Biddy, short for Bridget, which meant, of course, that they were good friends. Occasionally, she would emerge from her glass booth to congratulate a young mother on having a baby or to sympathise with someone over a death. But this as people said, was a formality, a mere gesture. No one had been invited to a new Pebble Dash house, and the twin sisters who called unannounced were left standing on the doorstep with some flimsy excuse about her distempering the kitchen ceiling. She was determined to remain aloof, and, as if to emphasise the point, she had Venetian blinds fitted. You may ask, as the postmistress had asked, the postmistress, her sworn enemy. Why have Venetian blinds drawn at all times, winter and summer, daylight and dark? What is Bridget trying to hide? What went on there at night after she strolled home, carrying a few tasties that the owner of the shop had given her, such as slices of bacon or tins of salmon? It was rumoured that she changed from her dark shop overall into brighter clothes, 
a child had seen her carrying in a scuttle of coal, so there was a fire in the parlour, people were heard to say. Parties began to take place, and many a night a strange car or two, or even three, would park outside her driveway and remain there till well near dawn. Often people were heard emerging, singing, She'll be coming round the mountain when she comes, when she comes. Such frivolities inevitably lead to mishaps, and there came one that stunned the parish. A priest died in the house. He was not a local priest, but had arrived in one of those strange cars with strange registration numbers. The story was that he went up to the bathroom, missed a step as he came out, and then, of course, it could happen to anyone, tripped and fell. He fell all the way down the fifteen steps of stairs, smashed his head on the grandfather clock that was at the bottom and lay unconscious on the floor. The commotion was something terrible, as Rita, a neighbour, reported. There were screams from inside the house. The creamery manager, it seems, staggered to his car, but was too inebriated to even start the engine. Then a young lady followed, drove off, and shortly after the local curate arrived at the house with the viaticum. An hour later, the ambulance brought the priest to the hospital, but he was already dead. Bridget put a brave face on it. Instead of hiding her understandable guilt, she acknowledged it. She spoke over and over again of the fatal night, the fun that had preceded the tragedy, the priest not touching a drop, regaling them with the most wonderful account of being admitted to the Vatican, not for an audience, as he had thought, but to see the treasures. Thousands of pounds worth of treasures, thousands of pounds worth of treasures he had apparently said, as he described a picture or a sculpture or a chalice or vestments. Then Bridget would go on to describe how they had all played a game of 45, and before they knew where they were, it was three in the morning, and Father so-and-so rose to return home, going upstairs first. He had had, as she said, glass after glass of lemonade. Then the terrible thud and they're not believing what it was, and the creamery manager getting up from the table and going out to the hall, and then a girl going out, and then the screams. Bridget made it known that she would never forgive herself for not having had a stronger bulb on the landing. At the high mass for the priest's remains, she wore a long black lace thing, which she had not taken out since her beloved husband had died. Her husband had been drowned years before, which is why she was generally known as the widow. They had been married only a few months and were lovebirds. They had lived in another house then, a little house with a porch that caught the sun, where they grew geraniums and begonias and even a few tomatoes. Her despair at his death was so terrible it was legendary. Her roar when the news was broken to her, rent the parish and was said to have been heard in distant parishes. Babies in their cots heard it, as did old people who were deaf and sitting beside the fire, as did the men working out in the fields. When she was told that her husband had drowned, she would not believe it. Her husband was not dead. He was a strong swimmer. He swam down at the docks every evening of his life before his tea. She rebelled 
by roaring. She roared all that evening and all that night. Nobody in the village could sleep. When they found his body in the morning with reeds matted around it, her cries reached a gargantuan pitch. She could not be let to go to the chapel. Women held her down to keep her from going berserk. Then, some days after he was buried, when the cattle began to trample over the grave and treat it as any old grave, she stopped her keening. Soon after, she put on a perfectly calm, cheerful, resigned countenance. She told everyone that she was a busy woman now and had much to do. She had to write to thank all the mourners and thank the priests who officiated at the high mass and then decide what to do about her husband's clothes. Above all, she was determined to sell her house. She was advised against it, but nothing could deter her. The house was for Bill and herself, Darling Bill, as she called him, and only by leaving it would the memory, the inviolate memory of their mornings and their evenings and their nights and their tete-a-tetes remain intact. She sold the house easily, though far too cheaply, and went back to the country to live with her own folks, a brother and a deaf-mute sister. No one in the village heard of her until a few years later, when her brother died and her sister went into an institution. Unable to manage the tillage and foddering, Bridget sold the farm and moved back to the town. She was a changed woman when she came back, very much more in charge of herself, very much more the toff, as people said. She got a job as a bookkeeper in the shop and started to build a house, and while it was being built, many conjectured that she had a second husband in mind. There were rumours about bachelors seen talking to her, and especially one who came from America and took her to the dog track in Limerick a few Saturday nights in a row and bought her gins. The news of her drinking soon spread, and the verdict was that she could bend the elbow with any man. Hence, being installed in her new house was not the neighbourly affair it might have been. There was no housewarming, for instance, no little gifts of cream or homemade black puddings or porter cake, no good luck horseshoe on her door. In short, the people ostracised her. She seemed not to mind, having always kept to herself anyway. She had a good wardrobe, she had a good job, and as soon as she started to keep select boarders, only two, at the most three, everybody remarked that she was getting above herself. Her house was sarcastically called the Pleasure Dome, and sometimes, more maliciously, she was coupled with the song Biddy the Whore, who lived in a hotel without any door. Her first two guests were strangers, men who were doing some survey for the Land Commission and whom all the farmers suspected of being meddlesome. They and Bridget became the best of friends, sat outside on deck chairs and were heard laughing, went to Mass together, the last Mass on Sundays, and in the evening imbibed, either at home or in the hotel. When they left, the creamery manager arrived, a big man with wide shoulders and a large reddish face. He was voluble, affectionate. He touched people's lapels, particularly women's, and he was not shy about asking for a kiss. A few of the girls professed to have spurned him. The old maids, who mistrusted him, 
watched him when he left the creamery at half past five in the evening to see if he would go straight to his lodgings or across to the town to have a pint or two. They would lie in wait behind walls or behind the windows of their sitting rooms. He rarely mentioned Bridget by name, but referred to her as the landlady, often adding how saucy she was and what a terrific cook. He was especially fond of her lamb stew, which, as people said, was really mutton stew. Soon the creamery manager, whose name was Michael, acquired a steady girlfriend called Mia. Mia was a bank clerk from the city and she came in her car at weekends and stayed two nights. He would splash himself with eau de cologne in the evenings she was expected and was to be seen traipsing in front of the house, so eager was he to see her. They never kissed on the steps, but always went inside and left some of the local snoopers, especially the women, demented with curiosity as to what happened next. She could, as Bridget told the shopkeeper, who then told it to everyone else, twist Michael around her little finger. She was subject, it seemed, to the most fitful moods, sometimes bright as a hummingbird, other times professing to have a headache or a sinus or a stomachache and refusing even to speak to him. Once, she locked herself in her bedroom and did not come out for the whole evening. She ate like a bird, bleached her hair with egg yolk and lemon and cut a great dash at mass or devotions, always managing to have a different hat or a different headscarf each Sunday. It was noticed that she hardly prayed at all, that she looked around, summing up the people sneering at them, and that she was not certain when were the times to stand and when were the times to kneel, but would look around to gauge what others were doing. Ah, it's her sweet mystery, her sweet mystery, Michael had told Bridget, who had told the shopkeeper, who had, of course, told others. Before long, Mia and Michael were engaged, and Mia was coming not only two nights a week, but three nights a week, and driving all around with him to see if there were any uninhabited houses or bungalows, because of course they would want their own place. Each week as well, she brought some item of furniture, usually something bulky, a mirror or a wardrobe or a whatnot or a bureau, and he was heard to say that she was furniture mad. In jest, he would ask the men why he was putting a rope around his neck. They were to be married in June, but one evening early in May there was a rift. Michael broke it off. It happened at the hotel, just as the crowd was wishing them well and making innuendos about the patter of little feet. Michael was very drunk. His drinking had got heavy over the last few weeks, and suddenly he turned to Mia and said very candidly, and almost tearfully, that he could not go through with it. She was to keep the ring. He wanted everything to end in good faith. She slapped him, then and there, three times on the cheek in front of everyone. How dare you, she said with the acerbity of a governess. And then she ran out and he followed and soon they drove off down the Shannon Road, no doubt to patch things up, as people said. But Michael was adamant. The engagement was broken off. She left that night and Michael hid for three days. He went back to the creamery, drawn and unshaven, and on that Friday he learned of her suit for breach of promise by reading of it in the weekly newspaper. There were photos of him and Mia, 
mention of some little lovey-dovey exchanges and even a photo of Bridget, who Mia said had had too much influence over him and was probably responsible for the rift. Mia also talked about her broken heart, the several plans she had made, the house that she envisaged, the little rose garden, then discussed her bottom drawer, which was full of linen and lavender sachets and so on. Above all, she bemoaned the fact that her romantic future with any other man was out of the question. In short, that her life was destroyed. Michael received a solicitor's letter, consulted his local solicitor, and was said to have paid her a hefty compensation. Then he went on the batter for a few weeks and was carted to the Cistercian Monastery and finally came home looking thinner and much more subdued. A gold digger, a gold digger, that's what she was, Bridget would say whenever Mia's name was mentioned, and in time the matter was forgotten. It was perceived, first by the postmistress, then by another woman who spoke about it to several others, that Bridget and the creamery manager were flirting openly. Soon after, they were seen holding hands as they took a walk down the chapel road after benediction. They had lingered in the chapel, allowing the others to leave. It was the sacristan who saw them and ran and told it to the town once she had recovered from her fright. People asked if she was certain or if she had not imagined it. That I may drop dead if it's not true, she said, putting her hand to the grey wool cardigan that covered her sunken bosom. The inappropriateness of this was more than they could stomach. After all, she was a widow, and she was a woman in her forties who ought to know better. Neighbours began to watch more carefully, especially at night, to see how many lights went on in the upstairs rooms, to see if they had separate bedrooms or were living in mortal sin. The less censorious said it was a flash in the pan, and soon he would have another beauty in tow, so that all, all were flabbergasted the morning Bridget stood in the doorway of the shop and announced her engagement. To prove it, a lozenge of blue shimmered on her finger, and her eyes were dancing as the people gaped at her. Before long, Bridget bought a car, and Michael gave her driving lessons on the dock road, the very road where her husband had walked to his death. He stopped soliciting young girls, even the young buttermaker in the creamery, and told strangers how happy he was, and that up to now all the women he had known were mere bonbons, and that this was it. Her happiness was too much for people to take. They called her a hussy. They predicted another breach of promise. They waited for the downfall. Some of the older women went to the parish priest about it. But when they arrived, the parish priest was in such a grump about the contributions towards a new altar that he told them to pull their socks up and try to raise money by selling cakes and jellies and things at the bazaar. He suspected why they had come, because the creamery manager had gone to him alone and stayed an hour and no doubt gave him a substantial offering for masses. To put a good complexion on the engagement period, a youngster was brought to Bridget's house from the country, a boy so daft that he dug up the tubers of the irises in mistake for onions. In short, no chaperone. They were to be married in December, which left Bridget two months to pack up her job and prepare her trousseau. She was always to be seen flying in her red car now, a menace to pedestrians and cattle that strayed on the roadside. 
To ingratiate herself, as they said, she offered people lifts to the city or offered to do errands for them. Some, being weak, accepted these favours, but not the diehards. A few of the men, it is true, praised her, said what spunk she had. She was much older than Michael, and moreover, she had got him off the booze. He drank only wine now, table wine. A week before the wedding, the pair went to the local pub, which they had got out of the habit of doing, and stood drinks to everyone. The shopkeeper, proposing the toast, said he knew that Biddy and Michael had everyone's blessing. People clapped, then someone sang, then Biddy, being a little bit tipsy, tapped her glass with her engagement stone and said she was going to give a little recitation. Without further ado, she stood up, smiled that sort of urchin smile of hers, ran her tongue over her lips, another habit, and recited a poem entitled People Will Talk. It was a lunge of all those mischievous, withered people who begrudged her her little flourish. There may have been, indeed, many people said that it was this audacious provocation that wreaked the havoc of the next weeks. Had she confided in a few local women, she might have been saved. But she did not confide. She stood aloof with her man, her eyes gleaming, her happiness assured. It never came to light who exactly had begun it, but suddenly the word went round, the skeleton that had been lurking for years that her husband had not drowned by accident. He had taken his own life. His predicament, it was said, was so grinding that he saw no way out of it. He went down to the docks that evening, after yet another hideous row with her, pen and paper in his pocket, and wrote his farewell note. It was in his trousers' pocket before they handed it to her. Why else had she roared for three days, they asked, and why was she unfit to attend her own husband's funeral or the high mass? Why else did she recover so soon but that she was a wicked, heartless harlot? The creamery manager, they predicted, would be a scapegoat once the marriage vows were exchanged. First one person whispered it, then another, and then another. The story slipped from house to house, from mouth to mouth, and before long it reached Bridget's appalled ears. As if they were not shock enough, she received one morning an anonymous letter saying that her husband-to-be would know of her skeleton shortly. She flung the letter into the stove, then tried in vain to retrieve it. Luckily, Michael was still upstairs, asleep in his own room. It was then that she made her first mistake. She ran around trying to bribe people, asking them not to mention this terrible rumour, not to tell the creamery manager for God's sake not to tell. The more she tried to quash the talk, the more people concluded her guilt. She lost all composure. She could be seen in her bare feet or in her nightgown running up the road to meet the postman to ward off any other dreadful bulletins. After that morning, she dared not let Michael go anywhere alone in case someone told him. She knew, or at least clung to the belief, that no one at work would risk telling him 
for fear of being fired on the spot. But in the street, or on the way to mass or at the pub, these were the danger zones, and for weeks she followed him everywhere, so that he began to show signs of impatience and said that she was a hairy molly, clinging to him. Her looks, which had improved since the engagement, took a turn for the worse, and she was what she once had been, a scraggy older woman with thin hair and skin that was much too yellow. Michael saw that she was distraught, but did not understand it. It seems he told the young buttermaker that his missus had got the jitters, and the sooner they got married, the better. Even while he was saying this, his missus-to-be was grasping at any straw. She confided in the shopkeeper who advised her to tell Michael that she broke down and even flared up, mistrusting her one friend. Why not take the bull by the horns and tell him straight out? he had said. She couldn't. He would jilt her. Had he not already jilted a younger and comelier girl? And was she, Bridget, not haunted by that same prospect? It was then that she remembered the old woman who had lived across the road from her husband and herself and had later moved back to the country. She would go to find this woman, who would swear that she had never heard a voice raised and that in fact Bridget and her first husband used to sit in the sun porch in the evening, among the geraniums and the begonias, whispering, holding hands, canoodling. Then a little respite came. Michael decided to go home to his own folks for a week, and that was a godsend. They would then meet in Limerick with a small sprinkling of relatives, and there they would be married, in the Augustinian church. One of the friars was a friend of Michael's, and he had already made the arrangements. Because of the breach of promise episode, it was going to be a very hushed-up affair. Before leaving, Michael tackled her. He sat her in the little armchair by the kitchen stove, where they had often, so often, joked and cuddled. He asked her if perhaps she was having second thoughts about things, if perhaps she did not love him. Her eyes filled up with tears. She said, No, no, Michael, no. She was so in love, she confessed, that she was afraid that it would go wrong. Then he kissed her and reproved her for being a daft little hen of a woman, and they waltzed round the kitchen, promising things that they would do when they were married, like putting a skylight in the kitchen and getting a new range so that she did not have to dirty her fingers with the ashes and clinkers. He loved her little hands, he said, and he kissed them. Num num, he said, as if he were eating them, as if they were jam tarts. As she told the shopkeeper later, they had a blissful farewell. He tried to coax out of her what she was planning to wear at the wedding, but she sang dumb. I sang dumb, she said, and described how she ran upstairs to get the old fox collar with its little foxy snout and beady eyes and threatened him with it, went yap, yap, yap. They played hide-and-seek, they laughed, they teased one another, but on no account would she allow him into the room where her trousseau was stored, her voile gown and her satin shoes, and her piles of new undies and the fleecy bed jacket. Their farewell was so tender 
that Michael even debated if he should cancel his journey. God blast it, I'm over 21, he said. But she persuaded him to go, insisted. She knew it was essential that he be away from this place, where any mischief maker could say, I believe your intended wife drove her first husband to his death. She could not risk it. There was something about Michael, although she never told him this, that reminded her of her first husband. They were both childlike and affectionate. They both had gruff tempers, but were quick to apologise, to lay a bar of chocolate or a hanky on the pillow as an appeasement. She loved them in much the same way, the same gushing, bubbly, childish way that she had loved at twenty. And miraculously, her love was reciprocated. The day after he left, Bridget set out to see the old woman. She was cheerful in the town when she stopped to buy petrol. She even told the young attendant that she was thinking of throwing a party and asked if he would like to come. Therefore, is what he claimed to have said. No one of us ever knew what ensued with the old woman because it was on the way back that it happened. It was a treacherous bit of road, always known to be. It twisted, then straightened and then fought suddenly and ridged under a thick canopy of beech trees. Lorries and cars had crashed there so often that people said there was a curse on that stretch. A witch had once lived nearby, a witch who defied the hierarchy and concocted pagan cures. People wondered if the aftermath of this witch was not the cause of all these disasters, and holy water had been sprinkled there many a time by the priests. It was after dark when the accident happened. Bridget had gone to the old woman and afterwards had gone to a hotel in the nearest town and treated herself to a drink. It may have been that she went to the hotel to celebrate, to taste for the first time the joy as well as the certainty of her future. Maybe the old woman had said, I'll tell them how happy you and Bill were, or had cried, remembering that other time when she was not old, when she did not have cataracts in her eyes, when the nice young couple invited her across the road for a glass of stout or a cup of tea. Or maybe the old woman had forgotten almost everything and just shook and stared. Whatever took place was never known. But in the hotel where Bridget drank the gin and lime and bought the crisps, she chattered with the owner and asked him for his card saying that she would be coming back there with her husband for a dinner. The locality, she said, was lucky for her, and she felt she owed it a little recompense. Half an hour later, she was around a tree, the car up on its hind legs like an animal, her face on the dashboard, askew, her eyes wide open. Some workmen who had been tarring the road heard the screech of the crash and ran from a little caravan where they were cooking supper. None of them knew her. Two stayed while the third went to a lodge of a big house to ask to use the telephone. The woman in the gate lodge was a bit strange and did not want to let them in, so they had to go up to the big house and quite a long time passed before the ambulance and the guards came. But the consensus was that she had died on the spot. 
She was brought back to the local hospital, where a young nurse laid her out in white. The mourners who came the next day were surprised, even aghast, that her face was so beautifully smooth, without cuts or gashes. It was makeup, they claimed. Perfect makeup. What a scandalous thing to adorn a corpse. Michael knelt beside her and roared intemperately, as she had once roared, leaving no one in doubt he loved her passionately. At the grave, he tried to talk to her, tried to stop them from lowering the coffin. He knew everything now. He knew her plight and was helpless to do anything about it. She had quite a large funeral, but beneath the prayers and the murmurs were the whispers of how drunk she had been when she got into the car. They said her face had been disfigured, but that some silly nurse had made her look presentable, had doctored the truth, sent her to her maker with this monstrous camouflage, some chit of a nurse, as wayward as Bridget herself had been. That was Andrew O'Hagan reading The Widow by Edna O'Brien. The story was published in The New Yorker in January of 1989 and was included in O'Brien's collection Lantern Slides in 1990 and in her selected story collection The Love Object, which was published by Little Brown earlier this year. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Andrew, this story is about the complete destruction of a woman. Yes. This town is Bridget's downfall. Why does it have to be that way? Is she the only person in this town who could possibly be breaking these rules in this way? I think sometimes women, even today, pay a very high price for their sense of freedom and for their sense of independence. And in the Ireland of the 1950s and the 1960s, even right up until today in some quarters, women especially, I think more than men, are accused of impropriety. They're thought to be making too much of themselves Mm -hmm. in these closed little communities which are always ready to undercut a woman's sense of freedom. And as you say, the character in this, Bridget, is destroyed by the tittle-tattle. There's almost a Victorian novel-sized piece of immorality being set in motion here. These people with their holier-than-thou manners and their over-attentiveness to other people's possible sin 
are actually committing a much bigger sin than Bridget ever did. Yeah. And I think that's very clearly and beautifully stated in the story. Another element of it that is just so striking and distinctive, really, for this great Irish writer is the sense of an oral ballad somehow behind mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the story. Listeners would pick up those references to witches, even the notion of a widow, you know, the wife of Usher's world, those famous Scots and Irish ballads, which were, in those countries, one of the earliest forms of literature, people sitting around a fire singing those ballads or telling those tales, which they had to add to each time mm-hmm. they told the tale. This story has some of that beautiful yeah. sense of almost spontaneous telling. And that's what the townspeople are doing. They're telling stories. Absolutely. <laughs> They're it's inventing. An, oh, fantastically so. In fact, this story, The Widow by Edna O'Brien, has such a beautiful unity of form and content. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you indicate, the story is... It sounds like what it's about. It yeah. does, and it's verbal construction. It's, it's actually imitating the theme of the story altogether. Even in that opening paragraph, you get a word uh, like dapping, which is fly fishing. Yeah. You know, the notion of people coming to the town to fly fish and staying at this landlady's house, just by dropping a word into a sentence in that way, it's somehow almost like a stone in a pool. You know, we see these circles travelling out for miles. Also the idea that fly fishermen would be the more respect, respectable yes, guests to have everything. in the boarding house. Everything's got a judgment attached to yeah. it in this story, yeah. which is, uh, it becomes a beautiful echo chamber, a rather tragic echo chamber in the end, of the tittle-tattle, the things people say to entertain themselves, with no sense really of what the impact would be on this woman who's trying finally to put her life together. You sense that they do know what the impact would be. I mean, you mentioned earlier the the, the idea that they're a kind of Greek chorus, and yes. they drive this woman to her death quite directly. It's a tragedy, but what she has done is not murder her children or her husband no. or any of these things. What she's done is simply try to pursue happiness. Sometimes people who have suffered are judged harshly for their suffering. Mm-hmm. And this woman lost her husband. Yeah. She roared so loud, uh, we hear in the story, that babies in their cots in the next parish could hear her. The old men by the fire could hear her roar. This is a woman who suffered horribly. And yet, although it sounds counterintuitive, I think in some small societies, people, especially women, again, who have suffered, are mistrusted for suffering, for having... Well, she overdid it, Yes, right? she overdid yeah. it, that she had no need, no need to make a show of herself, right. as the Irish would say. That's why she's punished, yeah. that these people would prefer that she's guilty of something. She's, that she guilty, was, she's guilty of having been a lovebird with her husband. That's you know, right. There was too much affection there. Absolutely. So the, the censure mm-hmm. that is so borrowed from the way the church in Ireland used to speak, you know, the idea that people were lovebirds, would be frowned upon. And that, <laughs> that frown somehow sort of travels all the way through this story. It's interesting to me that Edna chose to write the story from this perspective. We're not in the house with Bridget. We're not in Bridget. We're very much out there behind the windows and walls with the old maids uh, observing. Why do you think it's told in that way and not in the first person or at least by an omniscient narrator? It's interesting in relation to this story because so many of the stories that Edna O'Brien has written, including many of her best for The New Yorker, were first-person stories. It's a very conducive form for her. And indeed, it is an initial surprise that an Irish female novelist writing about a woman more or less of her own age 
doesn't adopt that way of speaking, but I think it's for a reason, and I think it's that she wants the reader to slightly experience the story as if they were a townsperson. Mm-hmm. There's a lovely story of Nathaniel Hawthorne's called My Kinsman Major Molyneux, which is set in a small town in an entirely different period, of course, but there's this sense of gossip and burgeoning horror in this small town. And again, you get that sense that the story's effectiveness depends on the writer having placed the reader in the position of one of the town gossips, that she doesn't allow you to over-identify with the voice of the suffering woman. She puts you in the position of almost pulling the curtain back in the story to look at all this happening in the town. I think that's very deliberate. I feel as though the reader feels almost guilty at the end because we've had this prurient interest as we've gone along. We've been voyeurs on the voyeurs. Uh, That's brilliantly handled. You know, it makes the story so united It's a wonderful experience reading it because you feel utterly implicated in the way you suggest that you almost wish you could have spoken up. Yeah. um, That you could have (laughs) intervened at some point and said, leave this woman alone. Yeah. And I don't think you would have felt that quite as strongly if she was, as it were, making a bid for your sympathy in her own voice. And she's an interesting character because she really does refuse to make a bid for sympathy. Even before... Michael and the and this scandal. She keeps everyone at arm's length. She'll come out of the office to congratulate you on a new baby, but she's not really a friend to anyone. And she leaves these two sisters standing on her doorstep and makes an excuse about her ceiling. She's a rather odd woman, isn't she? She doesn't immediately grab your sympathy. And yet she's playing cards till three in the morning, you know, yes. in a scandalous way with, with people that she actually enjoys. And as the writer said, she'll bend, <laughs> she's rumoured to be willing to bend her elbow with any man. You know, she'll drink, she'll be sociable, uh, more than sociable. She's accused of being a hussy. You're always at every turn being given an opportunity to look under the skin of the characters. And I think it's a brilliant handling of free and direct style in this story where sometimes something's been described and suddenly there's a slippage. Mm-hmm. The words being used are the words that the character who's being described would use right? Yeah. in order yeah. to bring you close. Writers sometimes make the mistake of labouring that technique. And there's no labour here for me. No. What I'm feeling is a very natural storyteller's art when it comes to invoking the energy that people would deploy in the gossiping. What's interesting is that Bridget doesn't seem to care very much about the gossiping until a certain point. Yeah. Actually, she quite cheerfully tells the story of the horror of this priest dying in her house. Yes. Without shame or embarrassment. It's just this was something, oh, it was a terrible thing that happened, you know, and everyone else is saying, the priest died in your house, you know, what a scandal, and you're to blame. Isn't that interesting? I wonder if it perhaps is to do with the fact that she feels no guilt about the priest, really, whereas she perhaps responds so violently to the accusation that her husband killed himself because there might just be a little truth somewhere behind it. Mm -hmm. I mean, in our lives, don't we respond with slightly more volume, shall we say, to those accusations which have a kernel of possible truth? (laughs) If it was only ridiculous, she may have been able to laugh it off the way she laughed off other gossip. But she did not want the man who would be the new husband to imagine that she was such a grim person to live with. that that she'd been a bad wife. That she'd been a bad wife. That It gets under the skin of her sense of self somehow Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and makes her panic. Yeah. I was interested in that. The first few times I read the story, I thought, you know, why is she suddenly so bothered? And then it dawned on me slowly that perhaps a nerve has been touched. Yeah. But yeah. that's just a possibility. It's a very open-ended story. It's very, it's very, I mean, what's interesting to me is that, you know, Edna doesn't tell us what happened with the old woman. She doesn't tell us if 
the car crash was accidental, if she was drunk, yep. if it was suicide, if it was any of the... There are so many possibilities for what could have happened on that day. It's crucial to the story, and yet we're back there behind the windows and walls with the townspeople, and we won't know. Absolutely. I mean, O'Brien is a champion withholder, and the story's effectiveness, I think, gains so much from her unwillingness to overexplain and to leave you with too pat a description of what went down, that in some way, as you rightly indicate, we're back among the gossips. Because the thing about gossips in small towns, of course, is that they're often guessing. Mm -hmm. And the worst of them are slightly willing into existence the thing that they're accusing yeah. the person of. Yeah. The titillation that comes in gossip, of course, is what comes with the notion that these people are excited by the idea of a, a woman who will drink with any man and a woman who's got a new husband and the last one was unhappy. It's like the love of soap opera, isn't it? People will get vicarious enjoyment from the idea of other people's woes and trials and tribulations. And I think that that's all suggested in the story with such grace that the reader isn't allowed off the hook. And yet these people have no remorse. This woman is dead in her coffin and they're complaining about her makeup. What a scandal. She's been, her bruises have been erased. Isn't that fantastic? Because, of course, any ugliness that we've seen enacted and animated in the story is probably theirs, but deft, just beautifully deft. That, that business of just allowing them to even continue with their terrible yeah. insinuations even while the poor woman's lying in her coffin. As someone who grew up, as I did, in a small Scottish town not far from Ireland, where the full velocity of local gossip was a, <laughs> was a major feature of everyday life, you know, I have to say I recognised almost the syllable, yeah. the fantastic human truth of this. Yeah. They're completely unchastened. Oh, absolutely. Growing up, I, I endlessly was in a constant state of consternation. The amount of energy and belief people would invest in the idea of other people's wrongdoing. In a way, it's completely natural because small towns are small. And, mm -hmm. you know, the people... There isn't that, a lot to talk about. There's not a lot to talk about. <laughs> and the people in those towns are superstars to them. Yeah. You know, everybody has to, in a sense, almost winkle out what their individual characteristics are as a way of keeping everything interesting. The idea of difference in a small town is always a difficult concept. On the one hand, the woman or the man who's different gets attention and it becomes interesting, but then they're always blamed for being different, for thinking they are someone, for getting above themselves. And this is a story where a woman gets above herself with her drinking and her excessive mourning and her noise and general taking up too much space in the world. There is no greater crime in a community <laughs> like that, it seems, than not being meek and taking up too much space. Though interestingly, Michael's, the woman he breaks it off with, doesn't go easily. She sticks it all in the newspaper. <laughs> you know, That's right. Everything Me that, that he did to her. I wonder if Mia in the story represents modern Irish womanhood. She's not right. Well, she's, she's an outsider. Down. She's yeah. come from somewhere else. So yeah. maybe she's allowed to do That's that. That's right. I think that she's the future. <laughs> Mia is not <laughs> driving into any tree. She's going straight to the local papers. Exactly. Um, and this woman, in contradistinction to Bridget, is she's going to have her say. And she's going to get a payment. She's going to be compensated for the man's bad behavior. Mm -hmm. um, but as poor Bridget, to her, the last second of her existence is being pressed out of shape yeah. by the demands of others. 
I think it's great that we Edna O'Brien is able to not just talk about women, but show the generational differences between them. Well, I asked Edna O'Brien what she was thinking when she wrote this story, and she said that she wrote it at a time when she was rereading Chekhov constantly. And she said to me, he has great sympathy for the foolish, unconventional women, the yearners, because they don't belong in the confined and confining spaces they happen to be born into. They are quite often punished for their supposed flightiness. Bridget, inspired by someone I slightly knew, struck me as a heroine at the mercy of the vigilante. And by not losing her wild spirit, she surpassed them, certainly in my imagination. Hmm. Which was interesting to me because she ends up dead. So she's, in a way, not surpassing anyone. She's not subdued, but she's almost subdued by that final rumor. It's an interesting aspect of Edna O'Brien's career, I think, that she, she has a strong sense that death is not the end. Her women often suffer, and they often suffer in Chekhov-like situations where they're being oppressed by, mm-hmm. by their sisters, by people around them who might quite easily, were they to apply their imagination, understand them. But they don't apply their imagination. They apply a conventional venom and self-protectiveness and so on. But Edna has never sees that as being, as it were, a sort of echoing tragedy. It's not enveloped in darkness for her. She would say herself that she's been a writer who has been much attacked, much accused, mm-hmm. a woman who spent a lot of her life experiencing loneliness. She's a writer who has been dedicated to her craft in a very solitary way for a long time and has dealt both in terms of the political temper of her times, but also in terms of sexuality and emotional life in ways that have caused her to be criticised roundly. So I think there's a little bit of that in this story. Mm -hmm. I think she brings her own sense that she will live on past the judgment, that there'll still be people around who are ready to say, you know, she was a bad egg, but there's something glowing and enduring in that description of what you might call Bridget's capacity for wonder. Mm -hmm. Those little scenes between her and the creamery man, the man she's about to marry, that's what lives on, the sense that she did have life. There's a joycean sense of uh, what he called epiphany in that for me. She had her tipple. She had her tipple, she had her (laughs) moment, and she lived her life. Yes, she died. Yes, She was shrouded in disaster, but yet she lived. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is one of the vital centers of this story. And and perhaps not true of the other people in town. Absolutely. You know, they they haven't lived as she did. The real beating heart of the story is that this woman who we end up feeling sorry for, actually, when all's said and done, she lived. And she knew how to live. And perhaps those people who were quick to gossip about her and condemn her and judge her even beyond the grave, will never know life as Bridget knew it. And it took Edna's Chekhovian (laughs) tendencies to bring us to that realisation. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. It's been such a pleasure. Edna O'Brien is the author of 17 novels and eight story collections. Her most recent novel, The Little Red Chairs, was published in Britain this year and will be published in the US by Little Brown in 2016. Andrew O'Hagan's latest novel, The Illuminations, was published this year. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, The New York Times, Granta, and The London Review of Books, among other publications. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com. 
Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Online and in the digital edition, you can hear the short stories in the magazine read by their authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.